Good morning. Pastor Kyle, I want to thank you all for being here today, especially our guests who are with us. We also welcome those of you watching online from wherever you are in the world. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. A lot of exciting things happening in the life of our church. And one of the biggest things that's happening for all Christians everywhere in the world today, it's Pentecost, which means it's the anniversary of the birthday of the church. So this is the day that we celebrate when Jesus ascended into heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit back down to be with us. And it came upon the original disciples and they began to speak in languages from all around the world. And people heard that and the apostle Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ right there and the church was born. So Today we celebrate that. So turn to somebody and say, happy birthday, because it is our birthday today. It is an awesome day to be here to come and worship God as we continue in the summer at the movies uh, uh, series. And we're going to be going back uh, to old school movie today, back from the 1980s. Uh, you might have seen it, maybe not. But uh, hopefully after you've seen some more and heard more about it, you might want to go check it out. Places in the Heart, Sally Field won Best Actress, the Oscar for that for this movie. So we're going to jump into that in just a minute and think about the theme of reconciliation. And certainly our world could use a little bit of that right now. Um, before we jump in, though, I would just invite you to say a silent prayer right now with me for a couple of things. The first would be people in our lives who are far from God. I've asked all of us to make kind of a list that we uh, keep on our phone or stick it in our Bible and just once a day pray for the people that we love, our families, our friends, people that our neighbors we go to school with or work with who are not in a good relationship with God that just maybe think through their names just now and maybe ask God to say, God, maybe this is the day that you're able to get through to them. And maybe use me as a connector, right? Use one of us, and if not us, then somebody, but those people who we just, we know that life rich in Christ is what it's all about. We want that for them. Let's just go through their names this morning silently. And then the second thing to do is to pray that I would speak God's word today. Right? I, I would get out of the way and let God come and, and we'd hear what God would have us say through the scripture this morning and that we would all hear it and allow that to become part of our own story. So a couple things, let's just, just take a moment now and pray silently for In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want you, for just a moment, to pretend and act like and try to put yourself in a situation that you don't know anything about God, you don't know anything about the church or church tradition. Now, maybe you're new today, and that'll be easy to do, and that's awesome. We're glad you're here and that you're checking it out. But for those of us who might have been in church for a little while or a little bit while longer, so I want us to think through something maybe for the first time and, and think how we might react to that. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture in just a minute. Uh, it's from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's going to be at the end of Jesus' life. Uh, he's been doing his public ministry for about three years. He's in his early 30s. He's getting ready to be executed on a cross, and he knows that's going to happen. He's going to be resurrected from the dead and do all these amazing things and send his disciples out, and Pentecost is going to happen. But but the disciples don't know that yet, and, and it's not happened yet. And so he's going to do something with his, his last time with his disciples before all this happens. And again, try to see this through fresh eyes. All right? So Jesus gets together. And here we are in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 26 through 28. 
While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So if it's your first time here, uh, and you hear this passage of Scripture, how might you react Well, I'll tell you, I've been thinking about it. And if it was my first time as an adult and I came and I heard that and I was sitting here with my wife, Laura, I would probably turn to her and say, honey, go get the car. I'm going to go to the children's area, get our kids and I'll meet you out front and we're going to drive like crazy out of here. These people are vampires. They're talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. That is disgusting. I've got 911 on my steed dial in case they try to stop us. I don't know where they have the body or where they had the blood stashed, but we've got to get out of here. This is like Night of the Living Dead film festival for real, right? I mean, really, when you read that out of context, I mean, it's the first thing you read. That's disgusting. This is my body. Eat it. This is my blood. Drink it. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Because that is ultimately creepy. Right. And so what's that all about? Right? This is Holy Communion. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Eucharist, which means to give thanks. What are you giving thanks for? Somebody's dead. We're going to we're going to be vampires and eat them. That's disgusting. What does it mean to take Holy Communion? Because that's just kind of weird. It's kind of wild. What, what, why do we do that at least once a month? Why did John Wesley, the founder of our denomination, do it every day of his adult life? What what's going on there? Well, Holy Communion is a sacrament, which means that it's an outward visible symbol, right? It's a symbol, something that symbolizes an inward spiritual grace, something that we believe that God does for us spiritually inside of our souls, right? So the outward sign of communion is bread, which symbolizes Christ's body, which was broken on the cross. And we use grape juice instead of wine because we know some people struggle with alcoholism and we don't want to be a stumbling block to to anyone who's dealing that. So we use grape juice and that symbolizes Christ's blood shed for us, right? And and so what it means inside of us is that, that Jesus died on a cross and he came back to life so that we could be in a right relationship with God. All of us do wrong things against God and against other people, and the Bible calls that sin. And and, and so that creates brokenness in our relationships with God and with people. And so some of the consequences are that we, we find ourselves separated from God, separated from people. The Bible uses the word hell. It's separation. We choose to be separated from people. We also are going to die one day, and, and so there's a, and we, have, we deal with guilt, and we deal with shame in our lives. And Jesus is thinking, that's not why I created you. I have so much more in store for you. I've created you in my image. I want you to be a part of something bigger than what you are. I I want you to live life to the full as long as you have these bodies and breath on this earth. And I want you to live forever in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's why he came. And that's why he died on a cross. And he took all of our junk on him so that we could be restored in a right relationship to God. Jesus did all of that. All we have to do is believe it. And turn to God and say, I'm tired of living a life apart from you. I don't want this brokenness anymore. I want to leave it behind. And I want you to come in and and forgive me and and be my Lord and my Savior. And so that's what we symbolize when we take communion. But here's the the hard part for me to understand. There's parts of communion that I understand. There's parts of communion that I don't really understand. 
Right? It's, it's, there's a mystery to it. Even in the midst of it being a symbol, we believe that God is present in the bread and God is present in the grape juice. Not in a sick vampire kind of way, but God is present among us. And, and it's something that's special. John Wesley, who is the founder again of our denomination, says that, that communion is a means of grace. It's a way that we open ourselves to receiving God's grace, which means God's unmerited favor. God does things for us when we don't deserve it. He dies for us when we don't deserve it. He forgives us when we don't deserve it. He gives us eternal life when we don't deserve it. Right? This is a way to open ourselves to God. And, and part of me, I understand that. Part of me, it's still like this mystery that I just, I don't fully fathom. And so what I'm going to do today is ask you to wrestle with the holy mystery of communion. Right? And I really appreciate when, when you come and, and say after I've spoken a message or something, like, thanks, Kyle. You know, God really used you to help me understand something that I can take home and it can be a part of my life. And that's the goal of every pastor is to, is to help the congregation apply this to their lives. And, and today I'm going to be real honest with you. I never have all the answers, but I certainly don't have all the answers with Holy Communion. There's just so much of this mystery that I don't understand, but yet it's important. And, and I think potentially what it means is that we just have to experience it for ourselves. And so we're going to explore that together today. But don't feel frustrated if it's something that we have to wrestle to try to understand because it, it's, it's mind-boggling to try to understand it. So let's look at some more scripture and see if it can help us. This is going to come to us from the New Testament. Uh, Paul wrote a, a couple of letters to a church in Corinth, which is in Greece. This is from the second uh, letter that he wrote to Corinth. And this is what he's writing to his church there. It's not about communion, but I think it applies to communion. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here, right? When we surrender to God, we want to leave our old selves behind. We want God to come and live in us. Uh, one way we talk about it is we're born again, right? So we, we become a new creation in Jesus, right? So all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Jesus gives us the ability to be reconciled with God, to have things made right with God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Thank goodness God gives us a break even though we don't deserve it. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Right? So since we've received reconciliation and the power of reconciliation and we know what it's all about, now we're supposed to go out and share that with the world. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. No pressure there. Right? We are to be God's ambassadors to help reconcile our world. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't our, isn't our world starving for righteousness? And isn't our world starving for reconciliation? You know, I, I invited President Trump and Kathy Griffin to come and hear this message this morning. Um, they didn't take me up on that. Um, but it's not just them that need it. You can look in the news and see all over the place in every category of every issue that there's brokenness and, and, and there's lack of reconciliation. And so for those of us who follow Jesus and we're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ in our own lives, how's it going? 
Are we reconciling people to us, right? People that we've wronged or maybe have wronged us? Or, or do we see people who are in, in conflict with each other and we're not a part of that, but, but God's given us the gift to talk about reconciliation? How are we doing on that front? Are we God's ambassadors for real? What does that look like? And I'd say for some of us, sometimes it's great. And for some of us, it's not great. And like me, I'm like a yo-yo. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. But I think that the experience of Holy Communion is something that can help us. And I can't fully describe it to you, so I want to tell you a story that I think can help drive home some hope in us of understanding what Holy Communion means. So I want to take you back to 1935 in a small town in Texas, Wakahatchee. I probably just butchered the heck out of that, right? Small town in Texas, 1935, right? This is during the Great Depression, It's a small town. Many of the people who live there are farmers. And many of them have lost their farms because of the Depression. It's not that they're not hard workers. It's not that they're trying everything that they they need to do. And so many of them uh, are are starving to death. Many of them are now homeless. Some of them are living in their cars. Others have moved in with relatives. Others have moved out, right? It's just a tough time to be alive. Also in 1935, it's a very segregated America. Right? So black people and white people don't mix well together. They don't live together. And when they do live together, it's in an unequal relationship. And so uh, this is a situation that is ripe for needing to be reconciled. There's a lot of brokenness in 1935, small town, Texas, America. But one family is actually doing pretty well. I want to show you this guy. He's the sheriff. Uh, his name is Royce Spalding. And he has a 40-acre farm. He's married. He has two children. And he, because he is a sheriff and has the income uh, from the government and also is working the farm, he's able to maintain his farm. And so they're surviving in the midst of the Depression. And he's a good man. He's a good Christian man. He's a pious man. And he's been to church one Sunday. He's come home. His wife, Edna, has prepared us a wonderful meal. He's just sat down to the dinner table. They've had the blessing over the food. He's getting ready to dig in and, and dive in. And it smells great. He's hungry. And the phone rings. And of course, a sheriff is never off duty, always on call. And evidently, there's some trouble happening down at the local railroad. He's like, well, what's going on? Does this have to happen right now? They're like, yeah, there's a couple of kids down there that seem to be drunk, intoxicated, and one of them has a gun and is shooting at stuff. He's like, well, I'm, I'm going to come down. So he and the deputy go down, and sure enough, there's a couple guys, and this one boy, he's just been drinking, and he's got a pistol, and he's shooting stuff, and he, he's not doing anything uh, to be mean. He's just bored, and he found this. And so uh, to complicate matters, it's a young black boy. Now, today we would say African-American because that's more correct, right? We have better knowledge. But in that day, they would just see him as a black boy or even worse, the, the N-word, right? And so this complicates things. And so the sheriff comes up and he's a good guy and he has a good heart. He's a good Christian. And, and this little boy named Wiley, you've got a picture of him. Just a, he's a good kid, right? He's just getting into some trouble. And so the sheriff is trying to talk him out of it. Just hand over the gun. I know you're not trying to do anything wrong and... And the boys, he's agreeing. He's like, yeah, I don't want any trouble. You know, he's, he's getting ready to hand the sheriff the gun. But when you mix a dangerous weapon and alcohol together, then the accidents happen. And as he's handing the gun to the sheriff, it accidentally goes off and it shoots the sheriff and he dies right there. Now, if this little boy had been white in 1935, Texas, he might have stood a chance. 
say, oh, it's just a kid being a stupid kid and he didn't mean it and it wasn't premeditated and, you know, he's probably going to have to serve some kind of time maybe for manslaughter. You know, we'll, we'll try and see what we can work out. But because he was a young black boy in 1935 and he killed a white man who was the sheriff, the local white supremacists grabbed him up. They tied him to the back of a truck and they drug him through town until he was dead and then they hung him from a tree to send a message, don't mess with the white people in this town. We don't care how old you are, we will kill you and we will torture you. So his family now has lost their son and this grieving widow, Edna, and her two children. Uh, We've got a picture of them. Frank uh, is a young boy and they call the little girl Possum. Probably not her Christian baptized name, but that was was the name that she went by, right? They're, They're left to try and, and, and farm a 40-acre farm that they've never done, don't have any skill or ability to be able to do that. Right? We're going to come back to their story. We're going to shift over to Edna, the widow's uh, wife's, or her sister's story. All right? I want to show you a picture of, a, of two married couples. These are like best friend couples. They hang out together. They play games together. They do all kinds of stuff together. And, and so on the left side of your screen, Right, you're going to see a guy named Wayne and his wife Margaret. Right, this is she's the sister to the widow. Right, so Edna is the widow. This is Margaret, her sister, and the way that she helps her husband kind of make extra money in the depression is she runs a small beauty parlor out of her home. Right, so that, that's how they're trying to make it. On the other side of the screen, on, on your right side of the screen, it's a guy named Buddy and his wife Viola. Viola is the school teacher for all the children in the town, right? Small town, she teaches all the children. Again, these are these two couples, they're best buds, and they do everything together, and they socialize together, they, they have a great time. But they also have a horrible secret, right? So Wayne on this side is having an affair with Viola on this side. And it's been going on a long time. In a small town, having an affair, there's no possible way to keep it secret. And so people suspect, they find out. Margaret figures it out, right? And so now, at least four lives are ruined. At least four lives are now ruined. And so Buddy decides to take his wife, the school teacher Viola, and he wants to try and make it work. But to do that, he's going to forcibly take her out of town and leave the small town because she truly is in love with the other husband, right? And so he's going to remove his family from this situation to try and reconcile. So the other side of that, uh, are Wayne and Margaret, the widow's sister, and they're going to decide to stay in town and stay together, at least for appearances sake, even though the whole town knows what's going on because they have a child and they want to raise that child in a non-broken home, even though it's going to be completely stressful and broken on the inside. And Margaret, in her heart, is never going to forgive him. She feels ultimately betrayed. Her life is turned upside down. And that's the brokenness that she's going to have to live with. So now we switch back to her sister, Edna. One day after she's buried her husband, the sheriff, and everyone has come by to express their condolences, the doorbell rings and the banker shows up. We've got his picture as well. And I think he's a good man. I think he's a well-intended man. And he's come to tell her that she needs to sell her home because there's no way she can work a 40-acre farm She doesn't know how to do it. She doesn't have the manpower to do that. And her home is mortgaged. And she has loan payments coming up that she can in no possible way make. And she needs to sell the house, take the money, buy something smaller so that she can still live and exist. And and I think he's trying to do the right thing. 
But he's not going to cut her a break because that's just not what he does. And so he's giving her this choice. And she immediately says, there's no way. I'm not giving up. This is our home. This is what my husband and I and our kids we work so hard for. There's no way I'm going to give that up. I'm going to give it my best shot. He's like, you're crazy. You're going to lose your home. But here's what I'm going to do. Right, he goes out, he comes back, and he brings with him his brother-in-law, who's a man named Will. We've got his picture. Right? Will is a blind man. He got blinded in World War I serving our country. And, but now in 1935, he really can't do much of anything. And so he's been pawned off on his brother-in-law. And so now his brother-in-law, the banker, is like, I'm tired of dealing with him. And so I'm going to make him live with you, widow lady. And he's going to pay you some money as a boarder. It's going to help you out a little bit. It's not going to be enough, but it gets my brother-in-law out of my hair and you're going to have to deal with him. And of course, Will is still frustrated and mad at the world because he's blind and he's an outcast and he's marginalized. And he says to Edna, I don't want to be here any more than you want me to be here, but we're stuck with each other. And then the circus continues, right? Doorbell rings. It's this tall black man named Moses. He says to Edna, I'm just kind of wandering through town, but I, I, I work with cotton and I'd like to come and work for you. Sounds like a good offer, but she doesn't know him. She doesn't trust him. She's like, no, I don't, I don't think so. But, you know, she's a good hard lady. She's like, you come in, I'll feed you a meal and send you on your way. So he comes in, he takes the meal, he goes on his way. But she doesn't know that he's also walked out with all of her silver stuffed in his pockets. And he's going to, yeah, he's going to try and sell that. Of course, her husband was the cop, right? And so... The deputy finds him on the way out of town. They find him. He's got the silver. They know where the silver comes from. They take him back, and they're ready to lynch this guy. Take her to the door, and he says to, to the grieving widow, he says, this guy says that you gave him the silver. Is that true? Of course, if she says no, then he's going to be killed. Problem solved for her. And either she has a change of heart or she decides that she's going to be compassionate or she decides that maybe she can use this to her own advantage. And she's like, oh yeah, I did give him that silver. Absolutely. Yep, it's his. Right? So the deputy's kind of confounded, but just walks away and the guy thanks her. He's like, you know, why'd you do that? She's like, I need you to help me save this farm. I need you to help me work the cotton. I don't know anything about it. Right? Because now she's got him. Right? She says, I will pay you, but I need your help. And so begins this odyssey, long story short, to save the farm. And what happens is this ragtag group of this blind war veteran and this homeless black man and this widow with these two young children, they begin to work the cotton and they begin to try and bring it in on time. And what happens is in, in their working together, they become a family and they become close and they begin to care for each other and they begin to be working for something bigger than who they are. And, and it's kind of like an image for church, right? You, we work for something bigger than who we are. We're part of something bigger than who we are. We, we come together and we become a family, right? But they realize that even if they get all the cotton in, which is going to be nearly impossible, they're going to have to hire all these people. It's still not going to be enough money for them. But then they, they remember that there is a prize of $100, which is in 1935 is a ton of money for the first person to bring in the first crop of cotton, they win a $100 prize and that would be enough money to pay Moses, to pay the other workers they're going to have to hire, to get the family in enough order to keep the, the house going and moving forward. But Moses says, there's no way it's going to happen. There's just no way. 
We will literally die because we will bleed. Our backs will be broken. We'll be working 24 hours a day. You just don't understand the labor intensive nature of this. And she's like, what choice do we have? And so again, long story short, they work hard, they work hard, they work hard. It almost literally kills them, but they get the crop in and they're the first ones to go to the market. And Moses knows that the guy who's buying the cotton is going to try to take advantage of this lady because she has no idea what cotton's worth or, or what to sell it for. And so he coaches her really hard. And she goes in and she drives a hard bargain and she gets the top dollar for it. She gets the $100 prize, right? And, and they come home and after all this anguish and brokenness, they're finally something positive in the world that they can celebrate and the family's rejoicing and they're, they're paying off the workers, they're paying off the bank. And, and, you know, it's just like finally some good news in 1935, Depression era, Texas is happening. But the guy that bought the cotton from her figured out that she didn't do this on her own, that Moses was a big part of it, and in essence took money out of his pocket and having to pay her more money. And so right after all the celebration and the jubilation, that night comes and the Ku Klux Klan shows up at her house. And they're wearing the white hoods, and they get Moses, and they torture him, and they beat him savagely, and they're getting ready to lynch him and kill him. When Will, the blind man, comes out and he hears it and he comes to the, the situation and he hears the voices from the Ku Klux Klan members and he, using his ears because they're heightened sensitivity now, he recognizes who they are. And so he begins to say, Mr. Johnson and Mr. Smith, I know that you under those hoods and do you really want to go forward and do this? And so it freaks them out because they're no longer anonymous and they've been called out for doing these evil things. And so they run like crazy. And so Moses' life is spared. But he's beaten and he's bloody and he knows he has to get out of town because the clan members will come back and they will kill him. And so in the height of the celebration and all these things, he has to sneak out of town and the family is broken again. And this story, this movie is amazing. It, it, it's the roller coaster ride from, from hell, right? It's, it's, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. It's like the, the great highs and the great lows. It's, you know, there's people who are alive, there's people who are dead, there's people who are betrayed, there are people who are the betrayers, there's people who are broken, just lots of brokenness, and there's a lot of wrongdoing, and, and then there's a lot of people who are, who are wrongdoing. And when you're watching the movie, it's just like, how much more can we take, right? Is there anything good or redeeming in this story? Because, wow, just when we're starting to feel good again, bam, you pull the rug out from under us. Why would she win an Oscar for this kind of thing? What's going on in this? Well, I want to show you the ending of the movie. Because the ending of the movie will show you what Holy Communion is about in a way that I could never say to you through words. So I invite you to think and remember all these relationships and stories that I've, I've tried to paint for you. And let's see how it ends up.
This morning, we take our text from 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and all knowledge, and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love is patient, kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. Love never ends. Before his crucifixion, our Lord gathered with his disciples. He broke the bread and blessed it, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and said, Drink, this is my blood which I shed for thee. It's in Holy Communion that a man who loves money more than anything finds peace. It's in Holy Communion that a black man who was beaten and bloodied and almost lynched to death is an equal. It's in Holy Communion that a blind man can in a way see. It's in Holy Communion that a children and a widow can be next to their restored dead parent and father. 
It's in Holy Communion that a white sheriff and the black boy that accidentally shot him and was lynched for it can share in God's body and in God's blood. Communion is a holy mystery, brothers and sisters. But I think it's a powerful one. And I think the reason that there's no reconciliation or not enough reconciliation in the world is because we try to do it all ourselves. And the only way that we can find reconciliation in our lives with the people that we've hurt or the people that we have hurt or been hurt by or, or any of the problems in our world, the only way that reconciliation can come is when we're first reconciled with God and then given God's power to go and reconcile with others, maybe even others that we've wronged that are no longer living. It's in holy communion, brothers and sisters, that I now prepare you, ask you to prepare your hearts to come and find the powerful, reconciling love of Jesus Christ to prepare our hearts for the mystery, the mystery of God. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.